you know, as I came to this day, and by the way, next week we're going to be gone, Saul and I and family, we go to New Jersey. So actually, Tom Stiles from, uh, oh, where is he from? New York, help me out here, New York, what is it? Federation for, where Dwayne Motley used to work, okay? Anyways, that particular group, he's going to be here, he, Tom Stiles, he's been here a number of times, and uh, he's going to be giving the message. But for today, as I was thinking about today, and um, thought about all the energy, think about all the energy that's put into the programs of this church. Or let's just even back up a step and say all the energy that you put in as a parent to seeing your kids transformed. And then you think about the church and the, and the programs and the Sunday school and the junior church and the toddler time and you have the Olympian program, you have the Word of Life program and all the different energy that's being put in. And then you have all the teachers and the adult teachers and you have ABFs and women's ministry and, and uh, Sunday night program. And, and you say, well, why do we do all that? Why, why do people sacrifice? Why do people put so much time into it? And it all revolves around the idea of this, that we want to honor God, glorify God, and we are seeking to be transformed. That's why we put the time in, right? It's not just about busyness. And by the way, it's not about building more people in this church, you know, bringing more people in. That's really not the issue. The main issue is that we want to glorify God and we want to be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ. That's what we work for. That's what we pray towards. That's what we give towards. And since that was the issue, I thought, you know, it'd be good sometimes, I mean, it would be good today to go back to a very common passage. Sometimes it's good to do that, kind of review, kind of make sure we get our, our sights set properly as to what we're here to do. And let's make sure as leaders we know what we're doing. Let's make sure we're being transformed. I think sometimes, even as the adults, as adults, we not, we're not exactly sure how the process works. So again, I want to review uh, a very common passage. Actually, I, I believe Bob Baker taught on this just five, six weeks ago in ABF. By the way, the great thing about the Word of God is you can keep getting deeper, right? You never can plumb its depth. So we'll, I'll probably be taking it from a little bit different direction than he did. Well, again, Romans chapter 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now again, he says mercies because basically everything he's talked about in Romans 1 through 11 has to do with the mercies of God. Because again, you remember in Romans, he talks about how depraved we are, how hopeless it is. All have sinned. All have turned away. None seek God. And yet through the process of Romans 1 through 11, we see that God is the one that rescues. And based on that mercy, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God has been merciful to us, do this. By the way, that's the great motivator. You ever get tired in your Christian life? You get frustrated in your Christian life. You know, you get frustrated with the other Christians in your Christian life. Just remember the mercies of God towards you. That will, that will solve the problem right there. If you know how sinful you were and how damned you were and how condemned you were, by the mercies of God, He's placed on my life. He's given me mercy. I can be merciful to others. That you present your bodies, verse 1, a living sacrifice. We need to be living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's logikos. That's the word, reasonable. Log logical. We get word logical. It's logical. This is a logical outcome. If God has been merciful to me, then I should be a living sacrifice for him. Doesn't that sound logical? That's a very logical thing. If God has been gracious to me, if he's forgiven me, if he's placed me into his body then it's very reasonable to just assume that, I mean, he, I should be a living sacrifice for him. I should be sacrificial and selfless for his purposes. It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about me. It's about his church. It's not about me doing my thing. It's about me serving his church. That's logical. I think that makes perfect sense. By the way, that should be able to get you up in the morning to get into his word. That should be what drives you to say, you know what? No, it's not too... It's, it's February and it's cold out there, but I'm going to get there to serve those kids or serve those teens or do my ministry. Yeah, it's logical. But for today, I really want to focus on verse 2. Okay? We've kind of got the context now. Verses one to, chapters 1 to 11, he talks about how how hopeless it was, and yet God rescued. And then verse 1, it's logical that we would be a living sacrifice. But now he's going to break it down even more. 
Because we came from a filthy place, the world. We came from a filthy situation. And he says this, don't be conformed to this world. I think it was the Phillips translation that said, don't let the world press you into its mold. The world is pressing us into its mold. The world gets upset, by the way, when you walk out of step with it, right? See, you can, you can be a Christian, but it's when you stand for truth and now you're out here and the world is going down this path and you're over here that it gets upset with you. No, no, no. Let's work together. No, no. Paul says this. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't be conformed to the world. That word conformed is in the passive term. Um, in other words, don't follow it. Don't allow it to influence you. Now again, do we love the world? Well, in the sense of the people of the world, but he's talking about the philosophies. He's talking about the ideologies of the world. Don't let it, don't think like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't go down its path. And I, I, I thought, you know, I, I should give you some of the isms of the world. Just to, and all I'm trying to do, by the way, is it's kind of like when you come in, come into your house, many of you, as you walk in on a November day and you have your coat on, you hang it on a peg, the coat. That's all I'm trying to do here is give you some pegs to hang, hang these big thoughts on, like what is you know, secularism, what is humanism, what is materialism. By the way, there's a lot more pegs than four. You can get all the false religions. You, know, you, can, get, you, can, you can go quite a distance, but we're only going to cover four. Let me give you a thought before I even do that. I've been doing this series, uh, Truth Project, like my wife mentioned, uh, by Del Tackett, I think it is. And it's put out by Focus on the Family. If any of you can get to see that, and I, I know we're going to be running it through a number of the home groups. We're doing it in the college ministries. It's just a wonderful teaching. It's 13 DVDs. takes about 26 weeks because we split them in half. But the idea is it helps you think biblically. We don't think biblically. And there was a report or a survey done, or a poll, or whatever, done by Barna. And I'm not in the polls necessarily, but periodically there's something insightful in them. And Barna did a poll on the um, how many people in America have a biblical worldview. Think like God. Think like what the Scripture says we ought to think. And he found that in America, only 4% of the entire population had a biblical worldview. Think about that, 4%. Well, then he did one final survey and he said, well, how many Christians have a biblical worldview? People who say they are born again, they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the percentage was 9%. Okay, the point is, is Christians aren't thinking Christianly. And then we ask, and, and, and no, then it makes sense why Christians act like the world. Like you take surveys as to, well, how many Christians commit a particular sin like the world? And the percentages are almost equal. Christians are not acting Christianly. They're not thinking biblically. They're not being transformed by the Word of God. I, I think part of it is because maybe there's not a pursuit in our heart for God. You know, we'll show up to church and then, and again, I, it doesn't matter uh, if, I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm the one teaching, but there's a tendency to, like, evaluate the pastor, evaluate the teacher, or evaluate the Sunday school teacher, and, 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 and basically say, well, they, you know, it's boring, and they're not getting to me, and, and they're not helping me grow. And the reality is we need to take it upon ourselves and say we need to pursue God. We need to know how to pursue God. We need to use the Word of God and pursue it and study it, and, and it's the hard task, and we need to do it. Because, again, by the mercies of God. You're a living sacrifice. If you're a living sacrifice, you're willing to pursue God. You're willing to put your entire life into walking with God. Why? By the mercies of God. You're, you're willing to say, I don't want to be conformed to this world. Let me give you some isms. The first way of being conformed, what does the world think? The world is secular. I just gave you a, a key, key thought. The cosmos is all there is, if you want to say it that way. What matters is now and only now. That's what secularism is. What matters is now and only now. Secularism, for secularism, all life, every human value, every human activity must be understood in the light of, in, in the light of this present time. 
In fact, R.C. Sproul said, what matters is now and only now. That's the whole point. All they have is now. There is no eternity for a secularist. By the way, secularism, secularism is seen in Christianity by focusing only on the now. When you focus only on the now, you're, you're, you're showing your true colors, okay? And I thought to myself, how do I focus on the now? Well, if I focus only on physical health, I'm focusing only on the now. If I focus on politics and entertainment and sports, I'm focusing only on the now. If I'm real concerned about what Fox News says about a particular event, I'm focusing on the now. Do you see how we're pulled back into the world? I'm not saying never, never watch Fox News. All I'm saying is many times we'll put on a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour into a news enter, or entertainment, and yet we haven't even gotten into the Word of God. And the world is tugging us to itself. Philippians 3, you can write this down, 3.18 and 19 says that they set their minds on earthly things. He's talking about the unsaved. They set their mind on earthly things. I think that's a good definition of secularism. They set it on earthly things, whatever they can see. Another good passage is 2 Corinthians 4.18. While we, talking about Christians, look at the things which are seen, excuse me, while we look not at the things which are seen, we don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. We don't look at the things that are seen. That's not, and the word uh, look is fixed upon, like mesmerize, hypnotize by things that are seen. Some people are hypnotized. If a Christian is hypnotized, mesmerized by the things that are seen, focused on that, that's all they're focused, that's what they're thinking about then they have a secular mindset because God says it's not about today. It's about eternity. That's again why in Corinthians 18, he says that we set our minds on things that are not seen. By the way, I only can know what's not seen through this, through the Word of God. Secularism. Number two, humanism. Humanism says that everything revolves around man and exists for his glory and his pleasure, it's basically living life apart from God. It's all about me. I remember we showed a video one time where this guy is singing, it's all about me, it's all about me. You know, he's in a church service. Sometimes people come to church saying, well, it's all about me. If you don't bless me, I'm out of here. If someone bugs me, I'm gone. Well, no, humanism is just the exact opposite. It's not about me, it's about God. Hey, I'll give you an example of all about me. You go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, it was all about him. At the time of, his, of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You see how me-centered he was? You know, me, 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 me. I guess I'm not a singer. But anyways, it's all about my benefit. I think that's very subtle, by the way. I know as people, they sometimes grow through phases of their life, and at times they are very selfless, and then they, they get a little bit older, and it's almost like they've paid their dues. And they'll make statements like, well, I'm not going to get involved anymore in that area because, you know, I need to have some time for myself. Huh. Really? You think that's biblical? That's not biblical. The mercies of God. The mercies of God. But you see it in other ways. Feeling driven. This is what I'm talking about in humanism. Feeling emotion driven. You know, I've asked this of people. Well, why are you getting a divorce? Well, I don't love them anymore. Who's that about? See, that person's a humanist, even though they might be a Christian. Humanistic thinking. Well, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Uh, why didn't you finish your homework, your work, your tasks? Well, I didn't feel like it. And why do you take drugs? Why do you drink? Why do you look at pornography? It feels good to me. It's about me. Why did you have that affair? It made me feel loved. See, there's humanism... It's, it's about me. 
I have my needs. By the way, humanism is seen in Christianity also in other ways. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a great sign that, ooh, you're moving down a humanistic path. Like somehow it's about you and you can accomplish it. You know, when your happiness and your pleasure and lack of sacrifice for others dictates. So again, we have to be careful. See, God puts us into an imperfect church. You know, this is an amazing thing. God brings two people together and both of them are imperfect. Then he calls you to to work in a church and be part of a church and they're all imperfect. Now think about all the imperfection here. And the way that God grows us is by understanding that and still being committed to it. Okay? Yeah, when I married Sola, I realized she was imperfect. And that has irritated me at times. But so am I. Okay? Humanism says, I don't want imperfection in anybody else. It's all about me. I want it to run smooth. I, want, I don't want to have these bumps. All right, number three, materialism. This is another way that the world presses us into its mold. When our attitude towards things of this age, you know, money, fame, pleasure, that's, in other words, matter is, only, is the only reality. That's what materialism means. Matter is the only reality. There's nothing out there, not the unseen. It's just here. Be as healthy as I can, live as long as I can, get as rich as I can. That's materialism. And sometimes I fall into that. You know, oh, I got to, you know, keep healthy. And, you know, what's, what's the gold price? And what's the, what, is, what is the president doing? I, I'm looking at the things that are seen. By the way, thankfully, over time, the Lord has been ungripping my hands to this world. By the way, when we start out, that's all we have. Then you get saved. But now it's a continual process of Lord, you know, the Lord just saying, hey, focus on me. Again, when we have lust and immorality and sensuality and idolatry and all the stuff of the world and going after the things of the world, that's a, that's a red flag that says, you know, there's a worldview in your heart that has to do with materialism. And then finally, relativism. There are no absolutes. That's what relativism is. Obviously, there are, because look at how many hundreds and hundreds of times God and Lord, and thus saith the Lord, and those are all absolutes. The, the way that you'll know whether you're relativistic is this. How do you look at the Word of God? Do you see it as sufficient? Do you see it as authoritative? Do you see it as inspired? Do you see it from Him? We looked at Second Timothy a few weeks ago. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction. And those things should be happening in my life. And as I submit myself to the Word of God, I know that I'm not relativistic, right? Because I'm, I understand that this is truth. There's truth. There's error and there's truth. There's man's way and God's way, and I'm following Him. See, there are times when, when we don't do that. But First Thessalonians 2 Paul tells the Thessalonian church, you can just write this down, 2.13, it says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which also effectively works or performs it works in you who believe. When you received the word of God, it wasn't just like I spoke and well, it's not based on the authority of Ad Phelps. But you received it from what it really is, that if he's speaking truth, it's, this is God's word and I need to obey it. Or like the disciples traveling with the Lord on the Emmaus Road when it says, the, our eyes were opened and our hearts burned within us. Does your hearts burn when you hear the word of God? Oh, that's something I need to change. Oh, that's something I need to hold on to. That's a promise of God. I need to... That shows whether you're relativistic or... Believe it in the sufficiency of Scripture. Again, there's a lot of other isms, pragmatism, Marxism, paganism, false religions, all that stuff out there. But again, we have to be careful because with every one of those, there's a system of belief and the world's trying to push us into its mold. But I think those four that I gave you are the primary ones. 
That's why John tells his disciples in 1 John, do not love the world. What do, you, do, what do you mean? I don't need to love the people of this world? No, no. Don't love the system. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. You know, that has to do with earthly pleasures. That really has to do with materialism. I mean, that's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. What is the lust of the eyes? Power and prestige, keeping up with the Joneses. A lot of that's humanism. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. <laughs> pride of life. <laughs> yeah, I'm number one. Yeah, you're all here, but it's all about me. Arrogance, living for self, self-sufficient. I'm the boss. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, it bombards us. Think about all the places it comes from. It comes from the evening news. It comes from the internet. It comes from entertainment. It comes from your friends. It's unfortunate. Sometimes Christian friends counsel with other Christian friends and they have an unbiblical worldview and when they're asked for counsel, they give it the wrong counsel. No, you really should think about leaving him. He's a jerk. What does the Word of God say? By the way, I'm not saying that there's never a true reason for divorce. I believe there's biblical reason for that. But most of the ones that are given is not the biblical reason. And the world, this is in 1 John 2, 17, and the world is passing away. It's, it's disappearing. That's the word. It's dis- the world is, and the secularism and humanism and all this will disappear. It's passing away. And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So you got the Word of God and you got the world thinking. And this is what actually Del Tackett says is the cosmic battle. There's a battle going on for your minds and hearts. And so that's what Paul is saying in Corinthians 12, or excuse me, Romans 12, when he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. What do you mean? Well, don't think that it's just here, that it's just what is seen, that it's all about you, that you can do your own thing, that selfishness is the way to go, that it's all about number one. That it's really just about power and prestige and getting more and more things. Doesn't that affect us? Don't we move down that path? I mean, I, 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 if you get Israel My Glory magazine this, this last month, um, how many of you get Israel My Glory? Oh, I'm going to put in, I think, in the, in the bulletin for the mission month, uh, uh, excerpts of some of the great missionaries. But the interesting thing about each one of those missionaries is the sacrifice that they did for the gospel. And I think sometimes in my own life, I'm willing to sacrifice that much. And God says, you're a living sacrifice. Everything you have is mine. And we don't see it that way. And that's, that's part of having a biblical worldview, that everything that is mine, I am his servant. servant. I am his slave. He is not my slave. All right. So it says, don't be conformed. Don't be pressed, but be transformed. And, and I really want to camp on this for the next 25 minutes. What does it mean to be transformed? Because again, we put a lot of time and energy about being transformed. A lot of Olympian messages and word of life messages and the money and the time and the energy and the sacrifice even. But we want to make sure that we are truly being transformed, that somehow it doesn't hit us, but it really doesn't transform us. And I say it, I mean the word of God. What does God expect from us? Well, the interesting thing, this word transformed, well, let me just say it this way. It primarily is speaking of a new pattern of thinking and direction. It doesn't have to do with the outward. Let's just get that straight. Now, because I change inwardly, my outward will change. But again, transform doesn't primarily have to do with the outward. Paul does not say to substitute one outward fashion for another. What he's looking for is inward change. As you are hit with the Word of God, as you study it, as you're in a small group, let's say a home group, do you see yourself actually changing inwardly, your thinking patterns? The temptations of your life, are they becoming less because you're getting biblical thinking straight? Again, we want to be sure that we are working on sowing proper thoughts. In fact, someone said many years ago. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, what? Reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It's all about sowing a thought at the beginning, though. See, we have to be careful of the little things. 
We have to be careful about our thinking. How am I thinking? And it's the little thoughts and it's that little directions that lead to the big destinies. Sometimes people say, well, how did I get here? I'm saying when their life has been really kind of destroyed. How did I get here? It's because we took the little steps. The little thinking processes were wrong, and it led us down the path of the wrong destiny. Well, let's look at two items here. The first is we have to have a new mind, because he said be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to have a new mind. Now, again, mind here is not brain. We do know that, right? Someday... Some of you may see me laid out in a casket, and my brain will be dead. At least it better be if I'm in a casket. (laughs) But my mind will continue for eternity. Okay? My mind is is synonymous, if you could say it, with heart, with my thoughts. Do I still think in eternity? Are there still thoughts in my mind? Yeah, though I don't have a brain. Renewed. Okay, what does it mean to be renewed? It means renovation. It means a complete change for the better. That be renewed in your mind. What do you mean? There's a renovation. Something has to change in your thinking. That's why Colossians 3.1 says, Set your mind, in other words, your thinking, what you ponder, what you yearn for on the things above. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3.1. We have to have that type of thinking. I have, to, I have to change my mind. I have to think differently. It's not easy to think it is very difficult to think differently because we, were, we grew up and because of all of our environment and the people we hung with and the models around us and everything else, we thought in one direction. And God said, no, you have to think differently. You have to think differently of why you're in a marriage. You have to think differently about how you're raising your children. You have to think differently about the church and about God himself. All those things have to be renovated, changed. And by the way, they have to be not just beliefs, but convictions. I, I like what um, Jerry Bridges says. He says, a conviction is a determinative belief, a determined belief. A conviction is a determined belief. Now think about it. Something you believe so strongly that it affects the way you live. That's a conviction. Or to say it a different way, a belief is what you hold, but a conviction is what holds you. A belief is what you hold. A conviction is what holds you. I have a belief in the sovereignty of God and that God is my Father. But the question is, at the moment the doctor says, you have the big C, cancer, is it a conviction in my heart to say, yes, God is in control and he is my Father? That's when you know it's a conviction. I hold to a lot of beliefs, but the question is, are they convictions? I believe trials help you see that clearly. Because, see, we're not omniscient. But when God puts you through a trial, you start to be able to decipher between, oh, this was a belief, something that I could have passed on a theological quiz, but it wasn't a conviction in my heart because see how I responded. Okay? So we need to have conviction, something that holds you. He goes on to say, you may live contrary to what you believe, but you cannot live contrary to your convictions. Now, sometimes there's periodic fall, and you, 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 you immediately pop back as to your conviction. I'm not saying you're perf- perfect in even in your conviction, but the idea is this. What really you believe as a conviction is what guides your life. You can't say, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in his that I'm part of his family, that, that God has put me in a church, and let's say the church issue, and then not be willing to sacrifice for the church and serve the church. You can't do that. It, no, no, that's a belief. It's not a conviction. No, your convictions play out. That's why Psalms, or Proverbs 23 says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. If you think, that's so what you are. That's what you become. Psalms 119.11 says, Your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have tre- now catch this. I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you because if I've treasured your word, I'm not going to sin because that's become a conviction. I'm not going to sin against you. That's how we're sanctified. And, and as we looked at a few weeks ago, you know, before we, we get saved, now think about our mind before salvation. I mean, there's a lot of garbage that's gone on in our mind before salvation. Here are some of the ways that Paul, just Paul, addresses the mind of an unsaved person. He says in Romans that it's a worthless mind. 
worthless. It was, it's a term used for coinage, where you would have a gold coin, but the person had to make sure that it was true gold and it was the proper weight. And if it wasn't, it was, throw, it was useless. In other words, it wasn't useless in the sense of the gold, but it was useless. It, it wasn't worth that much. And he says in, in Romans 1 that God gave them over to a depraved mind, a worthless mind. In other words, a mind that could not be used to get close to God, to understand God. In Romans 8, 7, it says that we have a fleshly or a carnal mind. Fleshly, carnal, has to do with me. And it really has to do with humanism. The idea is that it's, it's our agendas and our desires and our goals and our way of viewing life. And it's kind of like man without God. See, that's what you were before you came to Jesus Christ. You were fleshly. Do those impediments still come on, on your life now that you're a Christian? See, you get saved. It doesn't mean like all of a sudden, no, I no longer have a fleshly mind at all. There's no, there's no residual. No, there's still a tendency to want it my way. And uh, Ephesians 4 says we have the futility of our mind, vain, devoid of truth, empty, no lasting purpose. Titus says we have a defiled mind. Colossians says we have a hostile mind towards God. Do you ever get hostile towards God as a Christian? Yeah, sometimes. Something is supposed to happen in your life, and it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, and you get angry. When you get angry, it's not just to the person or towards your employee or employer. or It's also there's anger there towards God. There's hostility. And then finally, uh, a corrupt mind. Corrupt in First uh, Timothy six. Corrupt. Uh, a lot of you have corruption going on at home. You know that a lot of corruption, because a lot. How many of you have gardens? That's all. Man, this was a great year to have tomatoes, wasn't it? Great year. But you have a lot of corruption probably, because what happens about this time of year? You've had enough tomatoes. And you've had enough you know, zucchini and everything else. And what happens? They start to fall. And, and whereas if it was back in you know, July 1st, you would pick that up and, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not that dirty. And now it's like, I'm so tired of them. Just let it rot. It's good for the ground. That's corruption. Corruption. Something was healthy, but then it's corrupt. Apples on the ground, brown underneath. That's corruption. That's what our minds were. Our minds weren't getting better. They were getting worse. That's how Paul... Changing for the worst. So, we had a worthless, fleshly, vain, defiled, hostile, corrupt mind. Does everything change just because you get saved? No, you still have residual. There's certain parts that still play out. And that's why in Ephesians he says that you might be, that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. We need to have the word of God because I need to get that filth out of my life, even as a Christian, even as a pastor that's been in the ministry for a number of years. I still have staining periodically of uh, hostility towards God. I still have a stain of periodically a uh, wrong thinking, fleshly thinking. I need to take a, a shower. Cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. I need, to, I need to have the water of the word clean me. Okay, that's what he's talking about, the renewed mind. I need, to, I need to know that I have a need to go to the word of God so it can change my thinking. I need to know that. And unfortunately, I, I think sometimes that is the biggest battle. I don't believe I really need to go to the word. I think of a couple of situations in my life when I've really needed a bath. One is when I used to hay, and it was hot, and that stuff sticky, and you know, you're throwing those bales, and all of a sudden, ooh, I just want to shower. I knew my need. The other time is when you're up in an attic putting down insulation, and it's like summer, and it's like, ugh, you know, and, and you, especially if it's old insulation, and you're trying to, you know, fluff it up, and all of a sudden, and you see the, there's a light coming through, and you can see all these fibers, and then you realize you don't have your mask on, and you have to pay the penalty for the next four days, you know, hacking up stuff. But the point is, I need a bath. Well, maybe I could tell you the story of when I cleaned out my own septic by hand. I needed a bath. <laughs> 
Hey, I was young. I was 24. I was living on very little, and it was, yeah, I won't even tell you about it. But <laughs> Hey, listen, all three of those things. Now, just think about this. In each one of those situations, I knew I needed the washing of water, the physical water. I knew I needed that, and I got clean by it. But do I have the same sensitivity to the Word of God? That I need the Word of God. I need to be cleansed by it, like Ephesians 5 says. Lord, I need to be in, in the path of the Word of God. I need to study it myself. I need to hear it. I need to go where it's being taught and being preached. I need it. Do you see the point? If you get a thirsty Christian, like Peter says, one who desires the Word, he will be transformed He because he says, I need it. It's not I'm showing up just because, well, it's the thing Christians do. Or if I don't, someone's going to be calling me. One of my shepherds will be calling me. No, no, I need, I need to be sanctified that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What does Jesus say? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's how you need the word. I need the word. And that's how I get a new mind. Lord, I can't get a new mind on my own. But your word can give me a new mind. That's the first part of Romans 12. Two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I need renewing. The second part, as we end, by the way, when I say as we end, that still means you have about 10 minutes to go. Okay. We need not only a new mind, we need a new direction. Because the word transformed has to do with, all right, because I have new thinking, it brings me to a new direction. It's not just about changing my thoughts. It's about changing my entire path. Okay, that's why I say new direction. The word is metamorpho. Again, metamorpho I. We get the word metamorphosis. You know, remember the little caterpillar? And then it turns into a beautiful butterfly. Well, that's the word. It's actually only used in Scripture four times. Uh, two of the times, it's talking about the transfiguration. That's the word metamorpho. Remember when Jesus is on the mountain? Peter, James, and John are there. And all of a sudden, he is transfigured. And you, they got a glimpse of the glorified Christ here on this earth before he comes back. See, they got a glimpse of what he was, or is, what he is. But at that moment, he wasn't. See, he was going to the cross. But they got a glimpse of the true Christ up there on the mountain, okay? Twice that word is used, this, this word, metamufu, is used for the transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark 9. But do you see why Paul's using this word? He's saying, listen, that's what I want you. I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to, I want you to be walking down the path so that you become more and more Christ-like so that the glory that God wants for you ultimately is even going to be in your life on this earth. And I don't mean the outward. I'm saying the inward motivations, the in, but, but they do affect the outward. Okay? Now, I said it, it happened four times. This word is used four times. It's very interesting how it's used. Again, Number one and two, it's on Christ's transfiguration. Number three, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter, let's see here. No, yeah, I guess we can go there. Uh, chapter three. I'm actually getting ahead of myself, but like I said, I only have 10 minutes. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter three. 2 Corinthians chapter three. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Make sure you keep your hand on Romans 12. But 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says you are being transformed. Interesting. It's in the same voice, tense, pattern. Present, passive, imperative. You are being transformed. This is what I'm trying to get at. You are not transforming yourself. Okay, now go back to Romans. Now I'm going to try to put this all together for you. So the word transform means to be outwardly what you are inwardly, and what you are inwardly is glorious. That's what the Lord was on when he was transfigured. And if you look at the word transformed in Romans chapter 12, it's in the, the present passive imperative. Present passive imperative. Now, now let's let's because this is tells you how to be transformed. It's in the present passive imperative. The word the 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 first thing I want to look at is passive. It's passive. In other words, I can't do it on my own. If I'm going to be transformed, it means I have to allow myself to have something done to me. 
That's what we saw in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that you are being transformed into the image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, in Corinthians 3.18, I had you turn there, because it tells us that it's the Spirit of God that does the transforming. So I can't do it on my own. At times in my life, I have thought I could do it on my own. You know, it's almost like let go and let God. Jerry Bridges brings up a very interesting thing. He said, the Christian life is dependent discipline. Dependent discipline. I am dependent on the Spirit of God to do it, dependent, but it's a discipline. It's something I have to do as well. It's dependent discipline. He uses the illustration of an airplane. You ever been in an airplane? I think I've given this many times to you. We're going to fly down to Florida, hopefully in February. But when I look out the wing, you know, when I'm sitting in my chair and I look out to see the, you know, ground below and the blue skies and everything, I hope that I never find that one of the wings are gone. Right? We have a problem. Especially when I start, you know, shaking and the thing's going like this. The point is, for an airplane to fly, it has to have two things, two wings. For a Christian to, to walk with him, you have to have dependent on the Holy Spirit, discipline, things that I have to do. Okay? It's passive. Bridges says this, We tend to vacillate between total effort and passive dependence. One day we try harder in the Christian life, trying to get transformed. The next day we just want to turn it over to the Lord. Let go and let God, and let Him live His life through us. Do you see how we sometimes... The reality is this, Lord, I want to be transformed, but I'm dependent on You, but I have to actively do something. I have to actually pursue him. That's why Jesus said in John 15, For without me, what? You can do nothing. It's not that you don't do anything, but you can't do it without me. Or in Second Peter, or, uh, excuse me, Philippians 2, For it is God who works in you, what? God works in you both to will and do of, of his good pleasure. He works in you. He works through you. So spiritual growth very much involves our activity. But, now I want you to catch this, but it is an activity that must be carried out in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where bridges get very profound. It is not a partnership. And I've told you this, it's a partnership. But this is how he explains it. It is true if you think about it biblically. It is not a partnership with the Spirit in the sense that we each, the believer and the Holy Spirit, do our respective tasks. Rather, we work as he enables us to work. His work lies behind all of our work and makes our work possible. We are not just dependent on him. We are desperately dependent on him. Be transformed. Passive. God's going to work on you. It's not that I have to try to be transformed. And if I really believe that I am desperately dependent on him, you know, what, you know how that's going to show up in my life as a Christian? I am going to thirst for the word. And I will be a person of prayer. Those, are, those will be two obvious things that show your dependence. Lord, it's not just about me learning a verse and then going on my way saying, well, I'm going to do it. Lord, every step that you tell me to do in obedience has to be done through your spirit's work in my life. That's passive. So I can't do it on my own. Number two, I must do it, though, because it's in the imperative. Now, it's interesting because normally in, the, uh, in English, you don't have an, a passive imperative. Usually imperatives are in what voice? Active. Sola, go get me a glass of water. She's going to go, you know. But here, no, no, it's... Or the boy got, you know, hit the ball, Tommy. You know, you wanna, that's a command to do something. In fact, let's use that little, uh, that, that little illustration. Say a father of a Little League baseball player will call out his son and say, Tommy, hit the ball. When he wants Tommy to do something, not, ha- not have something done to him. Yet Paul exhorts us to be transformed. He, doesn't, he does not urge us to do something, but to have something done to us. I just want to make sure we understand. But he's commanding us to do that. Let something be done to you. By the way, we don't like that. I'd rather just say, Lord, you know what? I thank you that you call me to yourself, but just let me stay right where I am, and someday I'll see you in heaven. Change is not easy. 
Okay? By the way, admitting that we need to change is not easy. I think one of the greatest stumbling blocks of true transformation is the willingness to really uh, admit who we really are. I mean, I've had some of the greatest, strongest reactions, the strongest reactions by Christians when they're in my counseling room and I've told them something that I actually see in their life and they don't agree with it. I mean, they about to stand up out of their chair. It is very difficult. We repress those thoughts. Okay, yeah, you know, I worry some, but don't tell me that that's major sin. Yeah, I, yeah, I look sometimes where I shouldn't, but don't say that I have a lustful heart. You know, we don't. Yeah, 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 I understand. I like to talk, but don't tell me that's gossip. You say I'm proud. See, the Word of God wants to nurture you in those areas. And sometimes we don't want... So, so why does he say uh, uh, imperative, command? Because you must do it. And that's very difficult for a sinful person. We're still sinful. We still have selfish. Now, let's, let's take this little Tommy. He's a baseball player. And let's say after the game, uh, his mother says, Now, I want you, Tommy, go take a shower. Now, again, this little kid is all grimy, dirty, smelly, sweaty. Now, think about what she's telling him to do. I want you to go take a shower because you need to get cleaned up. Well, in one sense, she's command, but she wants to clean, but the clean is not from him, but really from the shower. But do you see how she connected those? I want you to go take a shower. That's kind of how God is. I mean, that's how this verse is playing out. Listen, I want you to take a shower. It's not that you can transform yourself, but if you get in the way of the Word of God, it's going to transform you. Do you see the point? Tommy, go allow the shower to clean you. Because little Tommy doesn't want it. In fact, just recently I had a kid, one of my kids, all filthy, go take a shower, came out, he was about as dirty as when he went in. Sometimes when we go to the Word of God, it's the same way. We're about as dirty as when we come out. Now wait, this should transform us. You shouldn't be the same. So again, we have to be willing to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We have to be willing to put the time in to see the transformation because God created us to have direct line from our mind to the heart, and that is the transformation process. You can't bypass the mind. Let's review. I can't do it. I must do it. And then finally, it's a present tense. I must continually to do it. See, the word transformed is not only passive and not only imperative, but it's in the present tense. It's continuous. Continually be transformed continually. See, my duty is to cooperate with the Spirit of God as He uses the Word of God. I need to continually be in the Word, letting my mind get new information, and then allowing the Spirit of God, because I have an obedient heart. See, it's, it's how you come to this book. Do I come to this book teachable, wanting to learn do I come to this book saying, Lord, teach me, I desire your way? Do I come to this book being submissive and a hearer and a doer? Lord, I want to be obedient. See, if I come to this book with all those attitudes in my heart, now he shows me something. But this is the, this is the kicker. I still can't accomplish what he's shown me. I have to walk with him to give me the power to do it. You see the point? I have to be willing to submit to him. So again, present, passive, imperative. I need to do it all the time. That's why, again, Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore, do not lose heart. Sometimes people lose heart in the Christian walk. But though our outward man is decaying, by the way, a lot of us lose heart about our outward man, don't we? We're all getting older. You notice any creaks in your... Not quite as limber in the morning. Paul says this, don't lose heart. But though our outward man is decaying, it is, it's corrupting, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Same passive, present, present, passive, and uh, indicative. But the point is this, it's being renewed. How? It's not being renewed by me. It's being renewed that I put myself in the path of the word of God. And, it, and, and as we go through this year, the Olympian Club, the Word of Life, all the teaching, all the things. By the way, we even have for our uh, leaders this year a packet of verses that we'd like to have you memorize. But as I get into this, the Word of God, and as it's affecting my, I mean, as I'm studying it, I have to ask myself, do I really want to do it? And do I understand that it's the Spirit of God that's going to give me the strength to do it? 
And if I do those things in the desire to change for him, then I will be, I will be being transformed by the renewing of my mind. We don't want to just put time in. We don't want to just be busy. We really want to see transformation. But again, present tense, continuously. It can't be like this. Well, you know, I really want to get focused for the Sunday and maybe in the morning I'll have devotions. But, you know, by 5 o'clock, I am tired. I don't want to be transformed. There's an interesting story of some teenagers who wanted to go see a particular movie. It was PG-13, which for many of us might say, well, it's harmless. But they asked their father to go see it, and he asked them what it was like. And having heard from their friends, they described it as such. Well, it has, you know, some language issues, but it's not real bad language. You know, this is the kids trying to, you know, come on, Dad, let me go see this movie. It has only a few swear words in a little crude language. The father further probed to find out that there were some scenes of violence and a couple sexual situations, but no nudity. During the whole time, the teens assured their father that all their other friends had gone, that it was really wasn't that bad. It was a great movie. Knowing it was not pure and right and wholesome, the father stood his ground and did not permit his kids to go. Later that night, as they were sitting down for supper, the father said that he had a special treat for them, you know, after supper. So after supper, he brought out a nice hot batch of brownies. Boy, did they look good. As he was cutting them, he told the kids that these were special brownies. These had one special ingredient in these brownies. And they were like so excited. Oh, give me, a, give me this. I just, boy, don't you love a hot brownie with some ice cream and a little bit of uh, milk? What is it, Dad? Asked one of the kids. What is the special ingredient? Well, I followed the brownie mix exactly, and then I added just a little bit of dog poop. Dog poop? Well, I figure that just a little bit would not ruin the batch. Just like you said, a little impurity and sin would not ruin the movie. You know, sometimes we just allow the little. What I find in my life, I'm sure you find in yours, a little increases to more. And we have to be very, very careful that we're not letting impurities. Being conformed to this world, the isms of this world, to be allowed to just flourish in our heart because one little seed will grow to a pretty big tree, right? And we have to be on guard. Because again, if, it, if it's true that only 9% of Christians have a biblical worldview, you gotta view, you got to ask why. It's because we act, no, we think and we act like the world. May God forgive us for a lack of intensity in wanting to be pure. Let's stand as we worship him.